welcome, welcome. Good to see everyone popping up here. Let's enjoy a few minutes of, uh, of silence and stillness and upright sitting in which we can uh, express our true nature, which we share despite all the differences and variations and who we are and our backgrounds and where we come from. Every difference is, begins to fade away in the, in the space of our true nature which is the one true nature which we share. So as we sit, we sit to express that, to embody it, to realize it's the expression of our body.
let's uh, begin with the four practice principles. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding the self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. How about a review? <laughs> Sometimes that's, that's useful. <clears throat> I was reviewing, at least for me, uh, the last, uh, oh, I guess five or six weeks, uh, I've, there's sort of a theme that I've been weaving together. And part of the beauty of it is there's been so much serendipity. There are so many um, people who have sent me things and I've invited some of them to come forward and and read and discuss and it's been and it's continued uh, <clears throat> but after the, uh, Josh's last inquiry it really got me inspired and I I spoke about clinging to our views um, and about awakening a kind of a shift in perspective a perspective that doesn't deny anything includes everything and it's this wonderful uh, free ability to respond and improvise and and move uh, unhindered with this uh, what we realize, which is this unending flow, um, which is just everyday life, but it's this incomprehensible wonder, really. And that's why I wanted to start with um, the four practice principles. Actually, we don't cling to our views our self-centered thoughts, we began to make a shift in perspective. Um, the week after that, the title I gave the, my little talk was, If Everywhere is Home. And I read a little bit, which I'm going to read again. It's this, a, a short note that, remember our um, technical person in Madison had written at the end of the retreat, where she said, Thank you for helping me remember something I feel like I once knew. There is no lost. The word becomes meaningless when everywhere is home. And you're always exactly where you need to be. She says, in realizing this, I feel invited to dance along my edges to transform my fear into a curiosity of the unknown. And I'll never be the same. And she was really expressing that shift from clinging to realizing you're right in the midst of the entire universe, all space and time, and right exactly as you should be. <clears throat> the next week, I, my theme was everyday bodhisattva practice. And I had put in a longer quote because, you know, Steve had sent some things that were ch uh, really challenging and then Marla had sent some things and. Um, Cassie had sent some things um, and Suzuki Roshi said when we resume our original nature we'll appreciate the result of our effort moment after moment day after day year after year this is how we should appreciate our life when we resume our original nature every time you sit zazen as I mentioned before we started we're resuming our original nature 
This is how we should appreciate our life, and that's the function of zazen. Which is, next week, I think I used Ed's risky business. But going back to Master Basui, when he said, when this inquiry feels insurmountable and you're unable to understand anything, when you've exhausted all ideas and don't know where to turn, you're proceeding correctly. And you will no longer question the fact that your mind is Buddha. Which seems so counterintuitive to our original perspective in coming to practice to get something and to change ourselves. That we take that to its end and, and it gets and it's frustrated and then you have to step through a new threshold. And last week I continued that theme, uh, waiting for a bird to sing. And uh, Claudine read that beautiful Jacques Prévert poem and we reflected on constancy, patience, forbearance, and waiting. <clears throat> so this has been sort of a theme that's been moving in me and among us. Um, and softening the way we cling to our views, <clears throat> discovering we're more at home than we thought. And this discovery is the everyday practice of a bodhisattva, which is a risky business because we get checkmated by practice. And that requires a bit of forbearance. That's all of them in one sentence. Constancy and practice shifts our perspective over time and something new is possible but only because so much falls away. And as I was reviewing these things for myself and kind of setting the tone for today, uh, once again, this is the email I received. Uh, and it was from uh, Kim Nichelle in Madison. I was hoping she could be here today so she could read it like we've been doing the last few times, um, but she wasn't here. She's busy working, uh, but she gave me permission to do so. <clears throat> so here's the, um, uh, the exact email as she sent it. Dear, hello, dear Flint. I listened to the last two inquiries left last evening. So beautiful. I wanted to share with you another synch synchronicity. On Mother's Day, I went to visit Fred. And for those of you that don't know, many of you do, I know, uh, her... Um, a young adult son died uh, just over a year ago um, in uh, not very happy circumstances. Uh, he had become mentally ill, and uh, so it was a shocking and an awful loss, as many of you have experienced in many, many ways, including um, the, the, the worst of that, which is, of course, losing a child. I see Judy's here today, too, and done that, says Darcy. These things are a part of so she, and the place where Fred is buried, I'll tell you, this isn't part of the email, is called the Farley Center, but she re references it. And it's a, a place for uh, green burials, specifically, where the body is wrapped in a shroud and placed in without a coffin. So on Mother's Day, I went to visit Fred. I was quite bereft. It was sort of grief and sorrow that feels uh, stunning, bottomless like I would never be able to surface, even though I knew I would. It was raining and cold. So when I went to visit Fred, I was the only one at the Farley Center. I did a service at his graveside and ended up lying down on the ground at the side of his grave, just letting the rain soak in and the grief flow. I brought the journal that I used to write to Fred and she says, parenthetically, I, I think I've shared with you that I write out conversations with him. I just, I just get a sense that he's telling me something. And then she goes on. Anyway, I went down to the car because it was still raining. And what I tend to do is just write and write and write whatever my current embodied experience is and maybe pose a question. I'm not sure what question exactly I asked Fred in the midst of my ramblings, but the message came through very clearly, the one from Fred, and it was, listen. 
So sitting in the car, and she had, she had just, by the way, she had just listened to the inquiry about the paint, the portrait of a bird. So sitting in the car, I paused and just stopped writing, stopped thinking, just stopped. And I was surrounded by so much birdsong. All I could hear was falling rain and the birds, so many birds. Then Fred said, do you see mom? The birds are singing, even in the rain, and maybe because of the rain. She goes on, I've been sitting with that idea ever since, singing in the midst of suffering. I actually put music on my drive home that day and sang my heart out. It just weaves right into the tapestry that you created on Tuesday, so I thought I'd share. And she ends, the Dharma is alive, and the way it moves through this community is beautiful and deeply mysterious. Which I think probably deserves a bell. So once again, beautiful and deeply mysterious <laughs> that this would come forward after what we spoke about last time and if you if you google fred's kindness fund you will find things online about what she set up for her son in one of the interviews she said to the interviewer i taught him kindness Fred taught me generosity and joy. I taught my son kindness, but he taught me generosity and joy. So I wanted to talk about the generosity and joy along with the challenges, which is our theme lately, of true practice. And so I, I picked up Joko Beck's uh, volume, uh, Everyday Zen, the first book of her talks because I remember that there are two chapters in there right next to each other. What practice is not, what practice is. And by the way, in the second volume, which is uh, titled uh, Nothing Special, which is also the name of the, the Sangha in, uh, in Sheffield, England, there's a chapter in there, which my, my favorite title of all of her titles is called The Talk No One Wants to Hear. And it's about, and it's about this transition from the self-centered practice to a practice of generosity and um, a practice for others. And as I was looking through all of these chapters, I was a bit surprised, but then, you know, not so surprised as I began to make some notes that I suddenly saw that how her teachings had become our teachings at Appamata how it's being expressed through our hearts and minds and our bodies in our language and how, how they've, they've come through us. So, so here are my, uh, my notes from those. The first chapter is what practice is not. And I, I don't need to go into these in length. Uh, I'll reflect on them. But as I went through the chapter, these are sort of the, the, the notes. Uh, practice is not about producing psychological change. It might happen, but it's not the focus. It's not about intellectually knowing the physical nature of reality. You're not going to get a grand insight into the universe, you know. It's not about achieving some blissful state. And it's not about cultivating special powers. It's not even about having a nice feeling or being happy. It's not about a physical state of greater, greater strength or improved health. Not about developing an omniscient state of awareness. And it's not about highlighting all of our good qualities and getting rid of all the bad ones. So I know there's a lot of disappointment in this. <laughs> oh, really? <clears throat> Though some of those things might happen. And, and her last one, she says, and practice is not about being spiritual. And then she gives us the punchline. Practice is not about being anything. We don't practice to be 
anything. And so I'll read a, a few of her words here. She says, actually, anyone in practice has some of these delusions operating. You know, the ones I just listed, right? Don't we have those? She said, we all hope to change, to get somewhere. That in itself is the basic fallacy. But just contemplating this desire, we begin to clarify it. And the practice basis of our life alters as we do. We begin to comprehend that our frantic desire to get better, to get somewhere, is illusion itself and the source of suffering. We begin to realize that the very thing that we place on practice as a demand for us to get something is actually the, the source of suffering. It's like Fred telling Kim, listen, do you see mom? The birds are singing even in the rain, maybe because of the rain. There is a life of freedom, even in the midst of all of our difficulties, maybe because of our difficulties and our challenges. I, I copied another small, a couple of sentences from Joko because I, um, I made a connection with things from Dogen. She says, <clears throat> if our boat full of hope illusions and ambition. I like that image of our little boat full of hope, illusions and ambition to get somewhere, to be spiritual, to be perfect, to be enlightened is capsized. Then what's the empty boat? Who are we? What in terms of our lives can we realize? And then what is practice? And I remembered many, many years ago, in a retreat with Rab Anderson, he used a, a small poem from Dogen in his talk, and it, it's stuck with me, or a line did. I can remember this image of an empty boat bathed in moonlight. So I found it finally. Here's the, here's the translation of the poem. Midnight, no waves, no wind. The empty boat is flooded with moonlight. Midnight, no waves, no wind. The empty boat is flooded with moon, moonlight. And then it helped me remember, uh, understand why Suzuki Roshi's statement, which you've heard me use before, where it came from. Because his teachings are, are so uh, resonant with Dogen's that it's, it's in a different way. He, he said life, Suzuki Roshi said, life is like getting into a small boat, rowing into the middle of the pond, knowing it's going to sink. That's our life. We know where it's going, but we get in anyway and we row with all of our might and we enjoy the day and the night and the winds and the rains and the sun and the birds because that's our life. There's a small joke about this that you might enjoy though. One of my longtime students was in this retreat with Reb Anderson and at a break when we could say something, she came to me and she whispered, I don't understand what Reb is talking about this goat in the moonlight. She, she heard goat in the moonlight. So now, of course, I always think of a goat standing in the field of moonlight. That even as we empty ourselves out and let go, which practice is mostly about letting go, what's left is the, the buoyant container bathed in the, the magnificence of the universe. So those are some notes from what practice is not. What practice is? Here's a few more notes. She says, practice is essentially a simplified space. So we can actually see and feel ourselves more clearly. Very straightforward. It's a simplified space. So we can actually see and feel ourselves more clearly. We, uh, as one of my teachers once time, she said, we sit down, we sit up, we shut up and open to what is. Mm -hmm. 
And she says, in doing so, we do not engage in self-analysis. That's not it either. So what do we do? And then in that chapter, she gives Zazen instruction. She talks more about sitting, about turning toward each moment as we sit and allowing our awareness to meet reality as it unfolds. And then she ends that section by saying, our interest, interest with just being with reality is very low. Our interest in reality is extremely low. No, we want to think, we want to worry through all of our preoccupations, we want to figure life out. And so before you know it, we've forgotten all about this moment. We've drifted off into thinking about something. And she says, and when we're lost in thought, when we're dreaming, what is it that we've lost? We've lost reality. Our life has escaped us. I like that. Our life has escaped us. The things that we're clinging to and engaging in, we think are our life. And she's saying that's actually not it. Then she goes into a whole set of instructions on uh, labeling thoughts and sensations in that classical kind of vipassana way so that they become the reality um, we're sitting with. It brings us into the present moment. Not something to follow, like we have a sensation or a thought, not to follow it, analyze it, not um, and indulge it, but also not to ignore it, to meet it with intimacy. And in doing so, all those thoughts and feelings and sensations and embodiment become the object of our attention, just like everything else, without identifying with them. You know, if a car goes by and you hear it, or I see a plane go by in the sky, we don't, you don't think you're the car. So why would you think you're the other thoughts? Or the other feelings all of that becomes an object of your awareness and you realize your awareness isn't the content of your awareness so this labeling thing isn't just about identifying and following that is useful it's very useful for concentration and for other work and mindfulness but our practice is opening to that space that contains it all she goes on by saying practice at any stage is just being who you are at that moment. It's not a question of being good or bad, better or worse. Our understanding will grow over the years, but at any point we are perfect in being who we are. Remember in the Jacques Prévert poem, he says, wait for the bird to arrive. Sometimes he takes years. Our understanding does grow over the years, but even so all the while we're perfect being just who we are. And in my, my list of favorite quotes from this chapter, she says, we began to learn that there's only one thing in life we can rely on. Now, when I read that, that got my attention. You know, when the teacher says, there's one thing that you can, the most important point, there's one thing you can rely on. I'll tell you what she said. There's only one thing in life that you can rely on. Life being as it is. We can't count on anything. Life is always going to be the way it is. That's the one thing you can count on. She says, trust in things being as they are is the secret of life, but we don't want to hear that. But just because we naturally do hear that and think, well, like what are you supposed to do? <clears throat> she says, Zen is about an active life, an involved life, a life of action, not a life of passivity doing nothing. But our actions must be based on reality. When our actions are based on our false thought system, which is based on our conditioning, we are poorly based. What we're doing is not reprogramming ourselves, but freeing ourselves from all programs freeing ourselves from all programs <clears throat> and seeing that they are empty of reality. <clears throat> 
the point of sitting is not to be run by any program. And I would say, including a Zen one or a Buddhist one, or it's stepping beyond any program. And as we do this, our practice proceeds and she says, delusion comes under attack. This is the checkmate part. And the chief delusion, the chief one, is our constant unwillingness to bear our own suffering. Constancy, forbearance. Fred saying to Kim, mom, listen. <clears throat> And then Joko ends with, from the ordinary point of view, <clears throat> the price we must pay is enormous. I'm so sorry, excuse me. <clears throat> from the ordinary point of view, the price we must pay is enormous. But through seeing clearly, it ends up being no price at all, but a privilege. And as our practice grows, we comprehend this privilege more and more. It turns out that if we disabuse ourselves of all the ideas of what we think practice is, we make that transition to understanding what it actually is and how it actually serves life <clears throat> and settles us into our life. We and naturally feel gratitude and kind of a generosity, a humility that's wholesome and joyful and peaceful. And since I, I couldn't possibly let you go without a poem, you know me, I will, <clears throat> I'll offer something, but I'm looking on my screen. Is Mary here? Oh yeah, Mary's here. Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read the Gene Loman poem, and then would you read yours after that? Okay. And I can screen share it unless you have it. You have it. Okay. So I'll I'll read the first one in my terrible American accent, and then you'll hear Mary sing in her in her beautiful British accent. Her, but but you need the first one because it's a beautiful. Uh, she she wrote it out of um, the last retreat. Here's the Gene um, Loman poem. To say nothing but thank you. All day I try to say nothing but thank you. Breathe the syllables in and out with every step I take through the rooms of my house and outside into the profusion of shaggy-headed dandelions in the garden where the tulips' black stamens shake in their crimson cups. I'm saying thank you, yes, to this burgeoning spring and to the cold wind of its changes. Gratitude comes easily after a hot shower, when my loosened muscles work, when eyes and mind begin to clear, and even unruly hair <laughs> comes into place. Dialogue with the invisible can go on every minute. And with surprising gaiety, I'm thankful. I'm saying thank you as I remember who I am. A woman learning to praise something as small as dandelion petals floating on the steaming surface of this bowl of vegetable soup, my happy, savoring tongue. And I'm sure as Mary reads her poem, which she wrote after the retreat, maybe Mary, you'd say a couple of things about uh, how you shifted it, because there's some references in there that people in the retreat might not know. Shall I read it first? You do however you'd like to do it. It's yours. Okay. All day, my heart says nothing but thank you. I breathe the words with every step, still walking heel to toe with all of you. My mind can see the peonies falling open like your beautiful faces. And I am saying thank you, yes, to all that comes and practicing dying with all that falls away.
Gratitude comes easily after such connection, the gifts and openings of our shared humanity. Swimming in the merciful ocean, just being a fish, and with wholehearted joy, I am saying thank you, as I remember how it is to be nothing and everything all at once. The boundless love with which the Dharma passes warm hand to heart. Would you like to say anything about it? Um, no, the well, the, on its own beautifully, but. Yeah, the day after the retreat ended, I read the poem for the first time by Jean Lohman. Um, and then this poem just came to me. Um, it, well, it was that line all day, my heart says nothing but thank you. Um, because the retreat was so beautiful. Um, and reading the poem now, it just takes me right back there um, to, to being immersed in the practice with everyone and being in that room in the story and seeing the pianists and leading the walking practice and feeling, just feeling the embodied connection. And then there was the moment when you were there in the evening and I came up and said, I am nothing. Um, which I was thinking about again today when you were talking about the empty boat. Yes. Um, that experience of being nothing and everything all at once. Yes. Yes. Thank you for your gift. Now, all of us, all those faces on the screen are saying nothing but thank you. Thank you. Is there anything you would like today or is that, since you're here, no? Okay. Thank you. Maybe others will follow you and raise their hand. I'm just so thrilled, by the way, that these things are happening. <clears throat> and we realize that, that we're all practicing together as one heart, one mind, one body. It's not just you coming to listen to me talk uh, on Tuesdays or whatever teacher is here. And you're starting from right here. What is there to say? <laughs> I know. Novel, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> and yet you stepped forward. Yeah. Yeah. Just seeing everybody's faces and uh, Mary's poem just brought back the deep, beautiful, inexplicable connection that, uh, that you really feel when you're all together so strongly. Um, and this afternoon, uh, I was listening to a talk by Ed uh, Satizan, um, and he uh, he spoke about Ganto's last words, which I had never heard before. This particular story, if you like, Zen story, but it feels to fit so much with what we're talking about to do with practice. <laughs> so, so I wanted to share it. Can I share it? And is Ganto the, the one who would do the one finger zen? <laughs> yes, I think so. But in the story that he told, it was of these two monks who are uh, doing their journeying to find another teacher. And they go, first of all, to um, a very famous teacher who's called Seppo. Right. Uh, and they arrive at his space, if you like. And as they're arriving, he, he opens the door and runs out and says to them, what is it? What is it? <laughs> and they say to him, what is it? What is it? <laughs> and then he closes the door. And so they then go 
on, travel on because he's kind of shut the door on them. And they go to Ganto, who is another famous teacher, neither of these people I'd ever heard of before. And, uh, and, uh, and he says, come in, come in and, you know, whatever. How are you doing and where have you been? And ask them all their story about <laughs> where they've been. And they sort of talk about the geographical areas they've been. And he said, oh, you must have seen Seppo. And they said, yes, yes, we went to see Seppo. And Ganto and Seppo knew each other very well because they'd been Dharma, been through Dharma transmission together and things. So, so it, it feels really playful, this story. I guess that's part of what I liked about it. <laughs> so, so, then, so then Ganto says, well, you know, how was it? What was, how was it when you went to see Seppo? And they said... Oh, you know, we went there and he ran out and he said, what is it? What is it? And we said, well, <laughs> we don't know. So they then, so they then, uh, so Ganto being playful with them said, oh, well, yes. He said, yes. And, um, you know, when we were talking last time, Seppo and I, um, I think I should have told him what my last words were. So he left this sort of little carrot dangling <laughs> and they're sort of, you know, what were the last words? It's like, it's like, what's the most important, most important thing? What's, what's the thing that he was going to say? And, uh, and so they're really sort of curious about this. And, um, and eventually, so, so well, I said, he said, you know, I'll, I'll tell you what it was. And he said, this is it. <laughs> what is it what is it this is it <laughs> and that's what joko was talking about wasn't it exactly yeah. Yeah. exactly so it just makes it's me the one thing we don't want to rely on because like seriously this is it and all yeah. that seeking that we uh -huh. do that seeking and looking and trying to find and wanting wanting the, the nugget or to transcend being alive the only way to get out of that is die mm -hmm. you could die before you die which is the letting go that you're talking about which is paradoxically to be fully alive yeah. thank you i love the story <laughs> thank you Ed, Ed gives good talks about those whole stories. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Hey, Cass. Um, hi. hi. I, um, so, like, I often will have on gallery view while you're talking. And so I'm experiencing everybody being there. That's what I do. <laughs> so I can see as many people as possible. Um, and so today, as, as you were like wrapping up, um, and in that moment before somebody raises their hands, the expressions on everybody's faces that it's like a sea of the open boat. It's like, you know, it's, God, I wish I could have the words for, I'm, I feel like I'm just fumbling here. Um, yeah. Keep fumbling. I love it. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes we don't immediately raise our hands because you've you've taken us there. And um, I want to um, I want to share that sometimes we're tugging on your shirt sleeve. And sometimes we're not. And I hope that you see all of the ways that 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 we that we don't have to grab. Well, I'm teaching you not to grab. Yeah. And inviting you to join me. Yeah. I'm not grabbing, but I, I understand the feeling. I was <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I mean shit, thank you. Um <laughs> Spiritually speaking. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I was having coffee with my friend Johnny yesterday, the day before, something like that, who's going through a lot of stuff with family right now. And the conversation turned to the deep places. And he, a question came up or a response in me came up that 
when I felt the response coming, my entire body position changed. Mm-hmm. And I remember times when like we, we would work and like uh, you would say, you know, take on a different body position in order to speak from this place. And uh, so when I felt this uprightness come into me. On its own. On its own. Uh, and, and enough awareness for me to notice. Um, was, because you're trained. Was uh, a moment when you were just like right there and like all of the ancient twisted karma and all of the teachings over all the centuries were, you know, in a coffee shop in Austin. All the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas throughout space and time were right there. Yeah. Embodied. The, uh, the barista came up as we were wrapping up and uh, wanted to talk about the conversation, you know? And it was just like, he goes, I overheard you guys talking and I knew I couldn't like come up and say something, but you know, he made a comment into that and asked my name. And as we were leaving, he was just like, bye Cass. And it, yeah, some, it felt, I felt something with that. Every day Bodhisattva practice. Yeah. And you've become, as you've heard me say, kind of jokingly, but not really, like being a stealth bodhisattva yeah <laughs> and yeah. even in a coffee shop somebody's going to hear your voice <laughs> which i love you know yeah uh, <clears throat> one time john was at a gig playing the drums in you know a club you know behind the band uh, and I was, it was in the back and I laughed at something. And then when the song ended, Johnny goes, Cass is in the house. <laughs> <laughs> and what's beautiful is you have that big, bold, beautiful presence. And you have that soft, deep, grounded, upright wakefulness all together. And that has been a joy to be part of and to witness over the last 20 years. Thank you all. I love seeing your faces. Yes. When you said it's like a sea, uh, you know, when we chant the refuges, talk about uh, uh, take refuge in uh, Buddha, immersing body and mind deeply in the way, awakening true mind, then Dharma uh, into the merciful ocean of Buddha's way. You know, you're really immersed in that when you see those faces. It's like yeah. it's. It's actually real. It's ordinary faces and it's everything. <clears throat> you enjoying the sound of the new bell? Yeah. That's a big one, huh? Mary Beth? Hi. How's your mom? Oh, thank you for asking. Um, she's she is where she is. I she's improving. She's still in skillful skilled nursing, um, but you know she's just adorable. <laughs> That's all I can say is she's, uh, everybody's she in love her with her. Yeah, the reason I'm asking yeah. is she broke her hip. And how old yeah, is she? she she's ninety eight. Yeah, ninety eight yeah. broke her hip. She's doing okay. <laughs> she's doing okay. I mean, getting her ready to move to the next place and go back home and live by herself and with care. So I didn't want to distract you, but I wanted to ask about that. Yeah, no, thank you for asking. I mean, it's actually kind of tied to that because the sense of everything we're talking about today, I'm so embodied with it. Right. I just, you know, and especially, you know, walk, you know, with working with my 98 year old mother, it's like, there really is nothing but gratitude, right? And, but then where I need help with my practice is I can't just stay there all the time. You know, it's like, what's next? What, because there's action and activity, right? That I have to do, whether it's for my mom, for myself, for my kid, you know, and, and so for my job, and it's like, you know, I was, I was thinking about, and I think it was Todd that helped me see this one time. It's like, you know, when I'm in an intensive, 
it's very easy. I know what's next, right? There's a structure and there's a schedule and I get, you know, and it's just really hard for me to figure out what's next. And that whole space of what we're talking about today, it's great and wonderful. And yes, I love it and I embody it. But sometimes I feel like I just, I, I, I get stuck there. Sure. I mean, it, nothing is permanent. So our thoughts and feelings change. But also you can feel there's a thread of illusion in there that you're dealing with, which is that you need to know what's next. That that's required. Okay, so it, it's going to come on its own. Okay. And you're so maybe I'm just too impatient, maybe. I wouldn't even criticize myself about it. It's just yeah. most of us do because we want to explain, predict, or control, as Joanna Macy says, because it gives us a false sense of security. If we can just know what's next, then we can prepare for its coming. Okay. There are, there are adaptations we do and coping strategies that we use, are, they're certainly useful in the everyday world, absolutely. But from this larger perspective we're talking about, you don't know what's going to come next. I've told the story, maybe you've heard it. Uh, interestingly, uh, I heard Norman Fisher say he walked up to the second floor of City Center, San Francisco Zen Center, there at Page Laguna. He turned right and worked, walked down the hall and he saw Blanche lying on the floor. And that's when she had broken her hip. But she was by herself. She'd fallen. And he's like, oh, he said, are, are you okay? And Blanche said, oh, I'm not, not sure. I'm lying here to see. Yeah. It's like, uh, well, I, I don't know. Yeah, let's, let's see. And so the response, like Joko said, Zen is about learning to be active, responsive, immediate. Do it. That doesn't mean pushy or reactive, the ability to respond appropriately, which means to take as long as you need or to respond as soon as you need. That helps. Yeah. Okay. To be free enough to take as much time as you need or as little time as you need. Because you okay. don't know what's next. But you begin to have confidence that you'll be able to meet it. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's helpful. Fred I said, Kim, listen. He's basically saying, you know, stop and notice. Who's saying that? And the letter that, I mean, the email that I got from Kim about her son, Fred. Who oh, got, right, right, right. Listen. Just stop. 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 Notice it. Notice. Is that what we're practicing? That just gave me a deep breath. Yes. Good. Good, good, good. Yes. Well, thanks for coming forward and asking this because this is really really practical and useful and immediate for everybody thank you yes and all right continues to heal thank you so now let's do the verse of the robe because it points to what everybody's been saying okay here we go vast is the robe of liberation a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. And by the way, for those of you who um, want to see the different chants that we use in inquiry, we tend to just use these two, sometimes Bodhisattva Vow, I just referenced refuges um, on the Appamata website. Uh, I can't remember which drop-down menu, but um, there's the uh, 
whole chant book that we use that, in a PDF, and you can get all of them there. Um, so I just wanted to make sure you knew about that. Thank you so much, Flint. It's under study. You click on study and you'll You're find it on the left-hand side. I think it's about the second or third one down. So, yeah, well, thank you so much, Flint. Thank you for being in the boat with us all. <laughs> it makes such a difference that you're We're all in, in it, it together. <laughs> That's it. We're all in it together. And it's just, uh, yeah, yeah, it makes such a difference. So thank you. Thank you so much. And um, Appamada and Flint and all the offerings that, that you receive here are all supported through your generosity. And, and if you'd like to offer Dana, please do go to appamada.org forward slash contribute. And then um, you'll see um, opportunities to offer Dana to Flint and other teachers. I see Laurie's here this evening as well. And then the other events that you'd like to offer Dana to. Thank you all so, so much. And if you'd like to continue to meet and share and stay in the boat a bit longer, then please join myself for a further 30 minutes and others. Others will be there, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> Thank you all so much. <laughs>